As the writer Annie Dillard said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And the reality is, we spend a lot of time working. About a third of our waking lives, according to some estimates. It can make choosing a career feel both momentous and daunting, especially for students facing the question for the first time. I've been in conversation with my students for a long time, and the conversation in office hours really boiled down to, I don't know what's going to happen when I graduate. I'm scared, and can you help me launch? That's Bill Burnett, Executive Director of the Design Program at Stanford University. Burnett has made a name for himself helping people figure out their careers, and it all began in his office. After listening to his students' fears about their futures, Burnett decided to take action. As a designer, he knew where to start. Look, this is obviously a design problem. Designers make things that are new to the world, like an iPhone or a computer. It's not relying on data or prior knowledge like something that's engineered. But for Burnett, the unknown is exciting. We know how to do that. We know how to make something that's never existed before. Burnett got to work. He created a prototype, which is basically a fancy way of saying he tested out an idea. He brought together a group of his seniors and began to conduct a series of conversations about careers. What eventually emerged was a course that would soon become one of the most popular ones at Stanford, Design Your Life. The course is rooted in the idea of a clean slate, that the students can junk the expectations that they have set for themselves or have been set for them by family or by our culture around work. Nobody's telling the students the truth, (laughs) that this is a big, messy process. So Dave and I have a rule. We do not should on our students. There's no shoulding in the class. You should want to save the world. You should go into engineering because that's where all the jobs are. You should become a lawyer because they make a lot of money. We don't do any of that. We let the students figure it out. We just give them tools and we blow up all these bad ideas they have that aren't true. There are, of course, many different views on how we should work. The great German sociologist Max Weber thought of work as a calling, a duty inherent to the capitalist system. The great American sociologist Todd Rundgren, on the other hand, has a different view. On season two of the podcast, we explore the nexus of longer life and the necessity of longer careers, and whether longer careers just means more years working as we always have, or whether, as Bill Burnett would put it, we can design into a system that allows for greater flexibility, better work-life balance, and more opportunity that is spread out over more years. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, Century Lives is here to start the conversation. I'm your host, Ken Stern. We begin the season on work at a timely moment. It's no secret that the very idea of work is under scrutiny. According to Gallup surveys, most Americans work more than 40 hours a week, a figure higher than any other developed country in the world. As life expectancy has lengthened, so have careers. So it is not entirely surprising that, again according to Gallup, less than 50% of Americans are satisfied with their jobs. But the culture is changing too. We've all seen signs in front of shops, restaurants, and factories. We're hiring. Help wanted. 4.3 million Americans quit their jobs in December of 2021, and that is down from a record high of 4.5 million 
in November. Some are calling it the big quit. Others, the great resignation. It's hard to know what will come out of the great resignation. Is this a passing moment or the beginning of a fundamental change in the relationship between Americans and their work? And is this upheaval impacting the younger generation that's about to enter the workforce? Let's go back to Bill Burnett for a moment. During our conversation, he mentioned something that stuck with me. Burnett noticed that his students' career priorities seemed to be shaped by events taking place outside of the classroom, notably the 2008 financial crisis. Your parents were having hushed conversations in the bedroom. The 401k had evaporated. Maybe dad or mom lost their job. And you're kind of a Depression-era baby in a way, right? Those students, you know, that hit the campus 2010, 12, 13, 14, um, financial stability and finding a job was now number one on their list. Which makes sense, right? I mean, they, they went through the Great Recession. We're starting our exploration of work and longer lives with students who, whether they know it or not, are taking the first steps along a career path that could easily run five or six decades. So how are students today thinking about their careers in the context of a very uncertain and chaotic world? We sent Aaron Slomsky Pritz, one of our producers, to Stanford to find out. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Ken. Welcome back from Stanford. Where should we begin? I'd like to start in the classroom. Education in the 21st century, what that might look like as people live longer and work longer. While I was at Stanford, I sat in on Psych 102, which is a class that focuses on longevity. Professor Mitchell Stevens will be here in just a few minutes. But just to give Today's class was taught by Mitchell Stevens, and Ken, you may actually remember him from our first season. He's a sociologist who focuses on education. I do remember Mitchell. Excited to hear him again. Okay, we're going to set the scene here. It's January of 2022. This was when the Omicron variant had led many schools to begin the new year with remote learning. I joined this class a week students returned to in-person instruction. Hello. <laughs> Maybe many of us have started to accept the new norms of uncertainty around gathering. And I thought I had. But being back in a college class 10 years after graduating, I mean, it really hit me how much has changed. I felt like I was in two time periods at once. On the one hand, the space felt familiar. 40 or so students sitting close together, chatting. But there were also reminders that things are really different. Everyone was wearing masks. And I, I just kind of got this sense that people were feeling out how to be together again. And Professor Stevens even spoke to this. He made a point to acknowledge the significance of gathering again in a way I can only describe as college. One of my favorite social scientists, a guy named Emil Durkheim, he was one of the first people to identify the, the kind of special magic that happens through physical co-presence. He called it collective effervescence. Um, collective effervescence. The particular group energy that people feel when they come together around a shared purpose. Professor Stevens then divides the students into groups and... Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Great. You know, Aaron, it's been an awfully long time since I've been in college, but I'm pretty sure we didn't do row, row, row your boat back then. 
But I see where you're getting at. Being in person has a really different kind of resonance now because of the isolation we've experienced in the pandemic. Absolutely. And again, I was curious to see how students were taking in all these changes as they thought about their careers. Before we get to the students, let me just ask, was there anything from the day's lecture that stuck with you that's relevant to today's episode? Yeah. Being at Stanford, I knew the students I was going to meet with had a leg up on people who don't have a college education. But I didn't realize that the bachelor's degree advantage is actually a relatively recent development in American history. Oh, and by the end of the 20th century, something else, this expansion of college had done something else. It had created a really important dividing line in American life between those who could expect reasonably secure lifelong employment, stable relationships, and relatively healthy, longer lives from those who could not. If I'm not mistaken, Professor Stevens is talking there about the increased college enrollment that was made possible because of the GI Bill which we generally talk about very favorably as one of the great educational achievements of the middle of the last century. So how did it play a role in furthering inequities? Great question. Employers played a big part in creating this disparity. Here's Professor Stevens again. One of the things that occupations figured out beginning in the 19th century, most famously physicians and lawyers, was if you created floors of educational criteria your, the prestige of your occupation went up, right? It's like a barrier to entry, right? Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like a velvet rope in a nightclub, right? If you can only get a job, if you have a four-year college degree, the status of the job goes up. It sounds like employers took advantage of college expansion in America by requiring four-year degrees. Yeah, exactly, as a way to enhance their own status. And it's actually at this moment in the lecture that I see the first student I want to interview. The tape I'm about to play next is a little hard to hear because the student was in the back of the class and I was sitting up front. But she rightly points out that many of the people who were eligible for college education through the GI Bill were white, which in turn denied people of color access to jobs. Therefore, a lot of black people hadn't caught up to the access to get into college through the GI Bill or through acceptances, or they didn't have the capital to pay for it. So you could discriminate and give white people who had gone to college the better-paying jobs and thus keep minorities in the lower-working class. It's as if you've thought about this before. I got the impression that this student was someone who had thought a lot about work, identity, and access. So after class, I introduced myself, and she agreed to an interview for the podcast. Great. Who is she? Her name is Maya Vinette. She's a senior and about to graduate, so really just the person we want to hear from. I'm excited to meet her. You should be. She's a joy. Yeah. I met Maya later that day in her dorm room. So, I love Ujima. There's no other place I want to spend my senior year. Maya lives in the Ujima house, one that's dedicated to celebrating and understanding African-American communities and those of the Black diaspora. Ujima means extended family. And it became clear right away that Maya, very naturally, was oriented around helping people feel welcome. Can I offer you a beverage? I think I have some sparkling water. I have snack. I'm very much a, like a mom figure, I guess. Very quickly, we got into her family story and her earliest ideas about work. So can you talk to me a little bit about, like, what do you understand of, like, your parents' careers and your grandparents' careers? Like, what did they look like? 
So in terms of parents, it's mostly it's me and my mom um, and my little sister. And mom is a teacher. And I grew up knowing that teaching is one of the most noble things you could do. It's also one of the most important things you could do. And then my mama's mama, Grandma Deborah, is also a teacher. And my grandma Deborah was the first person in her family to go to college because we're from Louisiana. Uh, pretty much my whole lineage is from Louisiana as far as we can trace back. And there weren't a lot of opportunities for black people. I am black um, in Louisiana and in the South. So before grandma Deborah, our whole lineage, um, I know grandma Deborah's dad worked at the sugar mill for decades until he retired. And then before that, our family was sharecroppers and slaves. Um, I'm say slave descendant black. And what what ideas about work did you grow up hearing from your mom, hearing in your house? Like, this is what's important, or this was my experience, whatever it comes to mind. So I definitely learned from my mama that when picking a career and thinking about a job, you have to identify something that you would not mind doing for the rest of your life, because I was raised by a generation of people and a culture of people where people don't really switch careers especially early on in the career. I know there were times when education was really changing throughout the country and a lot of teachers dropping like flies, quitting. Uh, but my mom at that point was already like 20 years into her career and she was like, I'm gonna get these retirement benefits, quit. I think not. So I kind of had that mindset instilled in me of, okay, when you pick a career, that's important because you gotta pick something to support you and your family that you wouldn't mind doing for decades. Given these ideas of work that she grew up hearing, did Maya come to college with a sense of discovering her passion? Actually, no. Her initial ideas about career had more to do with financial stability. Again, I'm from Louisiana, and in Louisiana, folks are not as fortunate, folks are not as privileged, they don't have access to as many resources as we do out here in Palo Alto, California. And so my goal I'm going to be honest, I'm going to call myself out. My goal when I got into Stanford and started at this school was to make money. That was the goal. How I did it, eh, you know, details, details. So like the overachieving student that she is, she followed this goal right away. I got a job at a major tech company one summer. And at Stanford, we are really taught that jobs at these tech companies, these consulting firms, you know, that is the kind of the holy grail. Um, of what you can achieve as a, a young Stanford student in the Silicon Valley. And I loved my paycheck when I was working at this tech company. My paycheck, wow, that. Uh, I think my paycheck as an intern might have been bigger than my mom's monthly salary. And I thought that paycheck, if this was just a glimpse of what I was going to get for the rest of my life, would make me so happy. Maya happened to take this job during the summer of 2020. And working remotely that first summer had a huge impact on her ideas about career. And then do you know what happened? A global pandemic came. And do you know what happened after that? The world shut down. So do you know what I couldn't do? Leave my house and spend the money that I had spent my whole life thinking was my goal. And so that really kind of made me rethink my career of if I'm just doing something for money, for a check, there, I won't always be able to spend the money. Money will give me things that will bring me temporary happiness, but it may not leave me fulfilled, like the actual cold, hard cash itself. It was during this time, working alone in a room, 
that Mai began to ask herself the hard questions about what she actually wanted to do with her life. What is it that I love doing? Talking to people, telling stories, learning, informing. Am I ready to take that leap? And ultimately, the answer was yes. And I said, you know, a job shouldn't just completely be about money if I'm going to be doing this for the entirety of my life. That's interesting. It feels like a microcosm of what we're seeing happening across the country as part of the big quit. People leaving jobs to pursue the things they feel passionate about. What's Maya hoping to do after graduation? Yeah, I'm applying to get my master's degree in journalism, broadcast specifically, applied to a few different schools. Um, who would have thought a little girl from Louisiana, a broadcast journalist? I know it sounds crazy to me too, but hopefully when these acceptances roll around, God willing, it'll be more of a reality um, than a, a dream. It doesn't sound crazy to me at all. I think she'll be great. So in addition to Maya, there's one other student I want you to meet. His name is Manny Faria. He and I spent some time chatting after class, and he really stuck out to me as someone who has thought quite a bit about how to choose a career that will prepare you for an uncertain future. Yeah, so I guess originally I am from Venezuela. Uh, I was born and raised there until I was 13. I then moved to Miami due to the humanitarian crisis in my country. Um, I didn't speak any English. I didn't know what an SAT was until I was like deep into junior year of high school. So high school was by and large uh, not uh, great for me, unlike most Stanford students who, you know, excel in that environment. Manny spent his years of high school working very hard to catch up with his peers. Like, for example, the math sequence in my prior school was totally different. So when I moved to the U.S., I was in Algebra 1, and I didn't know what an XY plane was, something that was so basic that everyone had learned since, like, sixth grade or something. And a lot of it was me having to do research on my own or watch videos and ask for help. Manny graduated from high school and went to Miami-Dade College in Florida. He was accepted into their honors college, and from there, he transferred to Stanford. Just to give you a sense of how exceptional this is, Stanford accepts about 1% of transfer applicants. Manny's parents are farmers. And before going to college, Manny decided that he was going to study to become a doctor. I asked him about that choice. I think just growing up in Venezuela, seeing like a living through a political crisis, I saw how many jobs could literally be destroyed and they could come and go and how the government could like seize entire industries. And I think that implanted a belief that like, uh, that I really desired to have a job that would always be in demand growing up because I never knew what, what was coming. And my dad always told me doctors and engineers will always be needed anywhere in the world. Um, and I think that definitely shaped my views on work. So it sounds like having a sense of security, both security and then flexibility, where like if you needed to change quickly, you could do that. Like those are the two things. I think so. And I think part of that is because we're family. Um, I'm an immigrant from a family of immigrants who immigrated from Portugal to Venezuela and then the States. So literally change has been like the ethos of our life. I'd never know what the future has holds for me. And I now view them more enthusiastically, but I think growing up, having that sense of I can be anywhere in the world and still flourish was really important. It sounds like Manny has a sense of what he wants to do going forward. Does he imagine his career being pretty linear? Yeah, I actually asked him that question. And let's say you had to like 
draw out your career? Like, what does that line look like? Is it a straight, is it a straight line? Are there pauses for like caretaking or other things that come up in life? Like, how do you imagine that? You know what? That's a really interesting question because I'd always thought of my career as like very different. It's so interesting because it's a big part of my identity, actually. Yet I always thought of it as different from my personal life. So when you mentioned the idea of like pausing for caregiving, I was like, oh, I had never really thought of that as something that could affect my career. Uh, I think part of it because my parents did take care of our grandparents simultaneously while working on their own careers. So I never really, uh, I was never really able to decouple the two. And, and therefore, I still kind of think that my journey will largely be more like linear. Definitely think that in the earlier stages, you're like more working towards getting the degrees that you have to get. And then, you know, after that point, I think it's really up to me to take it either all the way up exponentially, take it a little easy, be, you know, I think I'll have to wait and see. Manny is also very interested in the idea of longevity. He sees a lot of potential in the possibility that many of us will be working longer than previous generations. I think we should all frame this as more like a positive experience for all, because what this means for many people is that you get to have a second or third career. And that to me is exciting because I've always thought of myself as a generalist. So I could have a full run, a full course of a medical career and then decide, you know what, I'm going to get a PhD in philosophy for the heck of it. And I could do that and I can become an academic or I could explore many of the domains that I that I just outlined perhaps in more depth, or, or if I wasn't able to get to them, I could do that at that point. Aaron, you spoke with a number of students, including Manny and Maya. What did you take away from all these conversations? What stood out to me is that all the students spoke in some way about the importance of stability when they imagined their careers. In a way, they are not so unlike Professor Burnett's first students, the ones who grew up in the midst of the financial crisis. My sense is that they're doing everything possible to prepare for the uncertainties of the future. But when I look ahead, it's really hard to imagine how one can prepare for a career that may very well stretch a half century or more. What did you hear, Ken? Well, what stood out to me is that both the students spoke about their careers as relatively straight lines. It seems like they're still playing under some of the same old rules of work. Their answers aren't all that different from ones I would have given in 1985. Better, of course, but similar in spirit. I even mentioned that to Bill Burnett during a conversation, and apparently just about everyone has that idea about their careers when they first graduate. And, and, they, and they think it's going to be a straight line. You know, they, they you know, the, I, we, we add all the statistics, you know. I mean, so we say you're going to have at least three different careers, and the data says you're going to have at least 17 to 25 jobs. According to Burnett, when his students learn this, it's a pretty big surprise to them. But it also can be a relief. Because it takes the pressure off the first choice. I mean, they, you know, remember when you when you're when you're 22, the world looks pretty linear to you, and you don't know that that person you admire, who's you know the lawyer at the law firm or the private equity person, or the venture capitalist or the social entrepreneur, you don't know that they were clueless at 22. And this should be reassuring news to workers across the lifespan who are trying to navigate careers in a changing world. You know, this whole idea, you know, people say, oh, I'm 45, I can't change, or I'm whatever, I'm 55, I can't change, or 35, I can't change. You're, you're not too late. You will 
you will express yourself into the world and things will happen and you will be smart and you'll figure it out. You know, if you, if you stay, you know, again, there are going to be a lot of changes and the way you stay resilient and the way you stay nimble is develop lots of options. Think of yourself as a designer, prototype your way into future possibilities, all these things. As with so many things, Americans have a complicated relationship with work. We spend on average 90,000 hours of our lives at work, a number that is likely to increase as we live and work longer. It's a formidable figure, one embraced by people like the great scientist Stephen Hawking, who said, work gives you meaning and purpose and life is empty without it. But it is likely that more people will nod their heads when they recall the quotation popularized by the late U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, Paul Songus. No one on his deathbed ever said, I wish I had spent more time in the office. Over the next six episodes, we're going to explore the future of work and how the 90,000 hours or more that Manny, Maya, and their contemporaries will commit to work can be rewarding ones and the appropriate partner to the time they will invest with family, friends, their community, or even just themselves. It's going to be a journey, and we'll start next week with a pressing question of what do we get from this work thing anyway? why do we as Americans spend so much time with it? I hope you will join us. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Slomsky-Pritz, and Cameron Chertavian. Music for this episode was provided by Ramteen Arablui and the Audio Network. Archival audio from CBS News and 60 Minutes. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.